Escape Pod 147 February 28, 2008 Today's story, Pressure, by Jeff Carlson Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have an undersea adventure for you this week from thriller writer Jeff Carlson. Now that I think about it, I'm a little surprised. We don't get a lot of submissions with aquatic themes. I haven't read that much science fiction that takes advantage of what really should be a very rich setting for speculation. There are some outstanding examples. One of the earliest SF classics was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it's still a good read. In the 80s, Michael Crichton wrote Sphere, and James Cameron directed The Abyss within a couple of years of each other. Both were very good, though I think would have been much better science fiction without the magical aliens. The suspense in each case came from the environment, and from the human dynamics of a small group trying to survive outside dangers and each other within that environment cut off from any help. These stories are not so different in that sense than, say, 2001, which, come to think of it, also would have been better without magical aliens, or aliens, which was good because they weren't magical. But I digress. My feeling is that the oceans are just as mysterious, and should be just as rich in story ideas as outer space. Possibly more so, because we know there's life there that we don't understand. Even in the parts we know a lot about, just looking at it should evoke the sense of wonder that we get from the best science fiction. Just before Anna and I got married, we got scuba certified and spent our honeymoon in Grand Cayman, diving the reefs every day. I decided then that diving was a perfect science fictional hobby. It's a real alien environment with bizarre and beautiful life that's accessible, that it's possible for an average human being to visit. If you dig SF for the exoticism and you've never tried diving or at least snorkeling, if you ever can, give it a shot. Unfortunately, it seems most likely that the coral reefs will be completely gone in my lifetime, so in the science fiction movie sense, it's an alien world that we're invading and destroying. But there's more story there than that, and if you've got one, I hope you'll send it to us. We have a very human case in point today. We're excited to present Pressure by Jeff Carlson. Mr. Carlson lives in California. He's a first-place winner of the Writers of the Future contest, and his novel Plague Year, about nanotechnology gone awry, was a big hit last summer. The sequel, Plague War, comes out this August, and he's also collaborating with David Brin in a young adult series called Colony High. You can find more about him at his website, jverse.com, which every other writer whose name starts with J probably covets. The story is read for us by Great Answer of The Ropecast. The Ropecast is the world's premier rope bondage podcast and one of the only podcast resources for BDSM and alternative sex lifestyles. They just celebrated three years of podcasting yesterday, so happy birthday. You can find it at ropecast.net. So relax, and don't stop breathing as you change depth. It's story time. Pressure by Jeff Carlson They said I wouldn't feel a thing, but my dreams were awful. Pain and tightness, smothering weight, none of which overcame my excitement. I also dreamed of flying dreamed that I dove right through the ground and smashed into a spectacular new universe. Yet I caught only glimpses of brightness before my eyes ruptured and abrasive rock crammed through my mouth and sinus cavities. The mind persists in making sense of things, even when drugged and unconscious. It remembers. Waking was the real nightmare. I had no face. 
I weighed too little, and raw swelling in my throat choked my voice. The bite of a needle in one leg helped center me, even before the tranquilizer took hold. I stopped thrashing and understood that I was submerged in a tank not much larger than myself. I knew it was a horizontal rectangle, knew I was in its middle, yet I had no eyes. Could my hearing be acute enough to measure distance? There wasn't time to sort through my senses. The ponderous blood weight of the tranquilizer could not subdue the breathing reflex, and I dug at the water with every limb moving up, up, a hard ceiling punched into the smooth metal protrusions of my face before I reached the surface. There was no air, but I could not drown. I snorted water through the generous filter plate where my nose had been, then expelled a shocking pocket of liquid through the gills beneath my armpits. For a moment, I did nothing more than breathe, feeling each exhalation against my elbows. I almost touched my face, hesitated, then grew interested in my hands and brought them together. The index fingers and thumbs felt no different, but my other digits were thicker, longer, webbed. Garcia! Stenstrom's voice was too loud in the receiver, buried high in my cheekbone, distorted by the mumble of other people around him. How do you feel? I thought I heard the vibrations of his enthusiastic tone directly as well, dulled by the water and walls of my tank. Glass, no doubt. I imagined his entire research team all around my naked body bristling with recorders and palm tops, every face intent. Andrea had always giggled when we skinny-dipped together, watchful for neighbors but emboldened by each other's daring. In the early days when we lived at her parents' house in San Diego, before she got pregnant, Shark! she'd whisper and grab for me. I can be a pensive son of a bitch, and her teasing, her smiles had always been what I needed most. The thought of her now helped me ignore my embarrassment. My scrotum had been tucked away, my penis shortened, protective measures that Stenstrom's people swore were reversible, like all the surgeries and implants. I had that in writing, and an eight-figure insurance policy to back it, but there's not a man in the world who wants to be cut in that area, no matter the compensation. Garcia! Stenstrom raised his volume painfully. Answering, I almost swallowed a mouthful of water. Despite all my training, sub-vocalizing into a throat mic was very different after the changes reinforcing my mouth and neck. Eating would be a chore. I croaked, Drop volume! Stenstrom was apologetic. Is this better? Down, down, lots. You're more sensitive than we expected, apparently. Any other immediate difficulties? I kicked through a tight somersault. Feel great. My pride was my savior, my source of endurance. I spent the longest five weeks of my life in that tank and in a deeper pool, healing, testing, practicing. My feet and toes had been augmented, much like my hands. My thighs shortened to maximize the available muscle. I was damned quick. Relearning construction techniques with my new fingers was sometimes frustrating, yet my progress was real and those periods of solitary labor became important to me. At the surface, in the shallows, doctors poked and prodded and put me through redundant tortures. I had been warned that the study of my new body would be extensive and did my best not to fear or hate them, but I'd never imagined such intense scrutiny. During my years as a SEAL, I had been like a bug under a microscope, constantly evaluated and scored. Here, I was the microscope, my body the only lens through which they could measure their work. 
Stenstrom tried to be my buddy, as he'd always tried, joking and asking what I'd do with the money, yet his possessiveness was obvious. We'll be famous, he said. We'll change the world. I wasn't a slave or a pet exactly, but I was anxious to get started, to get away from them. The project had almost selected someone else, a loudmouth much better at politicking than me. But the job would mostly be done alone, and they must have thought he'd break without an audience. I'm sure my Navy files indicated no problems of that nature. I'm the private type, happiest diving or surfing with my laughing Andrea or teaching our boys to swim, feeling my heartbeat, finding the perfect ride, the perfect moment, away from other people and their squabbles and protest marches. I've never understood that urge to merge. Never wanted to add my opinions to the bubbling stew of e-media or buy five minutes of fame on iBio. For me, a mob holds no power, no point. Running in circles won't improve the economy, clean the environment, or affect the East Asian guerrilla wars in any way. Hard work is the answer. Honor. Persistence. A willingness to take risks. The project offered all that and more. I had to relearn how to chew and swallow, a slow process, but strangely, more flavorful. Stenstrom said that was only because of the premium foods they'd secured for me, but I had eaten well occasionally in the past and decided my improved palate must be a side effect of the surgeries that had strengthened my jaw and lips. Could taste buds be sensitized? Learning to see again was also a challenge. From old research with dolphins and orcas, Stenstrom knew better than to surround me with smooth walls. Many of those captives had gone insane over time. That wasn't a concern here, but they didn't want my brain to establish its new neural patterns in wrong or confused ways. Before activating my sonar receptors, which used ultra-low frequencies well below my improved range of hearing, they put me in the deeper, irregularly shaped pool. It was beautiful. I'd lost color, but the textures were vivid, stark, each shape imposing. My receptors could also see normally, but had no better than 2600 vision in that mode, which I'd use only for close-up work and to read instrumentation. I chose complete blindness when calling my family. Rather than face a show phone, I let a computer read and type for me, my throat mic patched into a voter. Site management had encouraged me to limit our exchanges to text only, which was easier to encrypt. And who knew what seven- and four-year-old boys would make of some stiff-mouthed monster claiming to be their father. Brent had only stopped referring to me as stepdad a short time ago, and Roberto was still young enough to forget me. The portrait we'd had done before I left was not an image that I wanted to disturb. Even though I had been caught in mid-blink and Andrea's smile looked forced, too large. I'm doing great, hun. How are the boys? I asked. Her response came in stuttering groups of syllables, all emotion masked by the machine. I use part of the advance money to buy a defender for our apartment. It almost seemed like she was having a different conversation. Why bother? I asked. The house should be ready soon. Smart alarms cost thousands of dollars, just a speck of what I'd earn, but the money was supposed to last the rest of our lives. We're still here in the meantime. The boys gave me no chance to brood over that resentment that seemed so clear in her words. Maybe I only imagined it. Are you in the ocean yet? How far down can you go? One of them babbled without first identifying himself, and the other said, Greenpeace rated you a top ten on the wide cast yesterday. Brent and Roberto both took after their mother, rambunctious little monkeys, 
and they gave me the praise and enthusiasm I'd expected. I hadn't realized that Brent could type so fast. The voter spoke his questions much more smoothly than anything Andrea had sent. Somehow, technical sketches of my surgeries and gear had leaked onto the net. I even had fan clubs with names like Cyborg.org and Z-Merman. The boys hoped for an exclusive, and I decided it was better to play along, celebrate my alienness. I promised to bring them both mementos when I returned. By then, security should have loosened enough for me to take home a few small bits of hardware, something for them to put on a shelf or carry in their pocket. When Andrea came back on, she was encouraging but brief. 604 to go, the voter said for her, but I didn't know how to answer. I'd lost track of the days left until my contract was up, knowing how long it would be. Love you, I rasped, and the computer carried my inadequate words away. Mapping the ocean floor was the greatest thrill of my life. Most people probably would have considered it tedious, gliding through a quiet, monochromatic world. But then the only way to get a rise out of most people is to batter them with kaleidoscopes of music, breasts, and talking heads. Or turn off the lights, the net, and TV. The worst riots always occurred during the rotating brownouts. Oil and coal were fast-becoming memories, and incredible advances in solar power had come to nothing due to greenhouse clouds and the megatonnage of dirt thrown into the atmosphere by the Nine Days' War. With tens of thousands still sick from radiation poisoning, no politician would even mention new nuclear plants, and hydroelectric, biomass, and wind generators weren't enough to keep civilization chugging along without interruption. AeroCorp had the answer. For months now, crews had been scouting various locales with buoys and remote-operated vehicles, and the tiny Japanese island of Miyake-jima, dead south of Tokyo Bay, was deemed perfect for political as well as economic reasons. Miyake-jima belonged to an underwater ridge that extended from the Japanese mainland directly into the Pacific Current, and its steep southern slope offered powerful updrafts in addition to the normal ocean tides. AeroCorp planned to build a field of turbines as deep as 500 feet using cutting-edge technologies like me. Normal divers max out at 300 feet and can't remain there long in any case. My surgeries eliminated the need for air tanks. More importantly, a gel solution had been suffused through my bloodstream and organs to protect me from compression. In addition to performing final hands-on site inspection, I was also conducting field tests of myself. Before creating other mods, AeroCorp wanted to see if unforeseen problems would arise, physical, mental, or emotional. I was glad for the test period. In three months, I had become a teacher and foreman caged by responsibility. Meanwhile, I explored natural altars of rock and coral, spread my arms to ride rip currents, chased quick clouds of fish. One morning, I caught a yellowtail. Its buttery flavor was complemented well by sour kelp, and I began to forage instead of eating only from the tubes in my food belt, secretly, truly making myself a part of this environment. The work itself was more fun than difficult, placing beacons, assembling cable mounts. For a country that had been almost entirely nuclear-powered for decades, Japan had a wretched safety record, averaging two and a half accidents per year. Worse, loss of containment in 11 reactors during the war had done more damage than North Korean missiles. They were desperate for a solution. 
Aerocorp hoped to rev up a quad of turbines as soon as possible. Not so much to offset costs, but to prove to critics and nervous investors that the idea was fundamentally sound. The complete project, involving hundreds of turbines, channelers, and land-based transformers, wouldn't be finished for four years. And, of course, Aerocorp hoped construction would continue for most of the century as they developed other locations around the globe. I worked nine- and ten-hour shifts, sometimes arguing with Stenstrom when he wanted me to come in. I'm no hero. I was angling for a bonus. My gung-ho attitude was also based on the fact that my camp on the lee side of Miyake held little appeal. Sleep was always welcome, but any messages that the boys had sent tended to make me feel lonely. And there was nothing to do but wait and brood, composing inarticulate letters to Andrea that I usually deleted. I was tired when my robot tug brought me to deeper water east of the island. We'd completed inspection of the last sites a week earlier, and the engineers wanted backup options. As I kicked away from the tug, a familiar thrill shot through my exhaustion. Beyond this shelf, the seafloor plunged away for miles. This place was like another planet, strange and new, and I was the very first. The squid didn't hesitate. Its only predators were much larger and shaped differently than me. As I drifted into range, holding a small mapping computer to my face, the giant latched onto my left elbow and biceps with its two longer grasping tentacles. Just weeks before, I might have yelled, but in this world, there was nobody who had come to help. I tried to kick away. No good. Its eight regular arms spread in a horrible, ash-yellow blossom. When I switched to sonar, the squid seemed even larger, backed by a spotty, rising cloud of silt. I dropped my computer, bumping one of the squid's closing arms. It hesitated, grabbing the small device, but at the same time, the pair of stronger tentacles around my left arm reflexively increased their grip. My armor tore open. So did the softer muscle beneath. Blood squirted out into diffuse threads, and I was lucky not to suffer a stroke, but too frantic to realize it at the time. Ah! My flechette gun was holstered in my left forearm, beneath the tentacles. I groped for the knife strapped to my leg, but another of the squid's arms brushed my foot, then seized hold, and I yanked my free hand away before it was also trapped. Garcia! Garcia! Stenstrom's voice felt like part of the adrenaline pulse throbbing through my head. I kicked not away from the squid, but into it, winning slack from its tentacles, using this moment of freedom to twist sideways. Its arms closed in, my face and left arm towards the monster's hard, gaping beak. Then my free hand found the gun and squeezed off three-quarters of a magazine, tearing open the back of my left ring finger. The squid nearly exploded. Its shattered beak seemed to keep opening, spilling flecks of torn innards. The convulsing tentacles yanked my shoulder from its socket and peeled away more armor and skin, but another burst of flechettes freed me, and I swam away. The current made restless ghosts of its gore and mine. Consciousness faded to a glimmer, but the thought of sharks kept me swimming. I don't remember the ride or the hammerheads that came after me, the shouting in my cheekbone that much I recall. Their panic was too intimate to forget. Trying to reload the flechette gun with one functional arm while clinging to the tug was a monumental task. They say I did it twice, which must be why it seemed like I'd never finished. The sea is no place for the weak or wounded. Andrea never wanted me to volunteer. 
not because of any danger or even because of what they'd do to me, but because it would take so long. We had argued before, like all couples, silly stuff like who was supposed to take out the garbage, and we'd had bitter discussions after she got pregnant. At the time, I was just 27. After 10 years in the strict, almost exclusively male world of special forces, and I had not proved myself excellent family material by butting heads with her son Brent. But until I told her that I needed to leave, we had always found a compromise. She let me name our baby after the father I'd never known, and I agreed to be more lenient with Brent, let him choose his own friends and music and clothes. We'd never shouted before. She'd never cried before. We don't need this, she said, but we did. If we wanted to give Roberto and Brent the education they'd need, if we ever expected to live someplace where sirens and knifings weren't regular affairs, a chance like this was too fat to pass up. Politicians said their recession had ended in 15, but that was news to us. The scuba guide business I'd started after I got out of the Navy failed almost immediately. I should have known better. The tourist trade had been flat for years, and my competition, already well-established, gobbled up what little income there was to be had. We weren't destitute. Andrea subbed as a math teacher whenever she could. We both did spot work for the park service, and I made wages on the docks as a mechanic and welder. But I missed the simple vacations we'd taken in the early days, surfing, kayaking. To be reduced to a life of debt, coupons, and freebies was hardly a life at all. The real horror had been the resentment with which I'd begun to view my family for needing so much I couldn't give. On the day before I left, Andrea argued that I'd undervalued my soul. Two years, she kept saying. Don't leave us alone for two years. We'll talk every week, I promised. Two years, Carlos. The boys won't even recognize you. Stenstrom opted for a swimsuit when he visited, which was all that I was wearing. To perform their repairs and to let me heal, the doctors had turned me into something of a surface creature again, enclosing my head in a large plastic sphere that piped in salt water, placing me on a table lined with gutters to collect my liquid exhalations. Keeping my skin damp was more complicated. The mist ducts tend to fog the room, so the doctors wore aprons and goggles and long yellow gloves. Stenstrom had a better grasp of psychology than that. What can I do for you? he asked, not bothering with how are you or hello. Sorry, chief. My fault. We, we should have ordered you to quit for the day. It's not like we were running late. His laugh was a goofy bird squawk that sounded fake the first time you heard it, but he was just a geek. Desk belly, pale, fingers constantly in his hair or at his nose. Seriously, <laughs> anything at all. Someone to read to me. Someone pretty. She can be friendly, too, if you'd like. I would have thought he'd be too embarrassed. I was surprised to find that I was myself. Too much time alone out there, maybe. My next thought was of my marriage vows, and guilt arrived late. But my first reaction was the honest one. I was basically a cripple here, and the idea of being manipulated did not excite me at all. I'd much rather masturbate, caressed and tumbled by the sea, alone with my favorite memories of my wife. Someone to read, I repeated. Stenstrom nodded. 
Uh, what, what do you like? Uh, oceanography and biology, right? Standing up, he patted the table rather than jarring me. I'll have someone come in. It was awfully cynical, but I couldn't help but think that he was improving at trying to make himself my friend. I contacted Andrea then, days ahead of the schedule we'd set, despite an earlier decision not to worry her. Stenstrom was right. I needed friendly female attention, and I didn't have to tell her that I'd been hurt. She wasn't home, though it was dinner time. Brent answered and said she was substituting at the community college. It made me angry. I didn't understand why she'd bother with such a low-paying job, especially since she must be crazy busy, settling into the new house, helping the boys adjust to new schools. But, of course, Andrea enjoyed teaching, and maybe the fact that we were rich didn't seem real to her yet. Maybe it was good that I'd missed her. Our exchanges had not been going well, and I might have said something stupid. Maybe communicating over such a distance through typed words alone was impossible. The boys didn't think so. During my recuperation, they peppered me with messages full of abbreviations and icons that my computer and I puzzled over. They were obviously spending more time online than they had with me around, learning new languages and modes of thought. I was pleased that they remained excited about my accomplishments, but Roberto seemed overly attached to a new interactive he'd discovered, and Brent confessed, maybe bragged, that he had been caught on two STEM sites. I admonished them both to finish their schoolwork as soon as possible each day, put the keyboard away, and get outside. Go play in the mud, I said. Returning to the ocean was unspeakably good. But my days grew more complicated as I coordinated with surface traffic, massive barges that probed in the quiet dark with fat, long, phallic drills, blundering through ancient beds of sediment, polluting vast stretches of water with their shrieking as they powered down into the detritus and carbonate. New voices sprang out of my cheekbone, crowding my skull, and four new mods had come through the surgery and would soon join me. This was ultimately what I'd signed on for, and I took close note of each shift's accomplishments, but the joy that it gave me was purely intellectual, and I clocked out with a surface cruise rather than working overtime. The best part of each day was making my way to and from my shelter, alone, letting the currents and whim dictate my course, always discovering new beauty, new peace. I think I knew what was happening back home. Most of Brent's chatter washed over me like a familiar, soothing tide. Club VR opened a new place downtown, and I got to Vert Gladiator, and I could have done it twice, except Uncle Mark is a bracket, colon, equal sign. The computer had grown better at recognizing icons, but Brent used so many. This one meant flathead, I guessed, or chicken neck, or whatever. What concerned me was his tone. Brent had once directed this same mean jealousy at me. Who is Uncle Mark? I croaked, the elongated fingers of my hand tightening into a ball. I hit the send button with a fist. What the hell's going on? I shouted six hours later when I finally got Andrea online. After all I'm doing for you. Her response was immediate. You did it for yourself. I stared at the shape of the computer as if it were another squid, my thoughts layered and conflicting. For the fame, she continued. The adventure. For the money, Andrea. I'm doing it for the money. 
Would you have let them cut you up if they were going to turn you into a disc, Carlos? You did it for the chance to finally be a fish. Its prow into the wind and waves, the barge lowered two turbines on cables, one off of each side. Just hoisting the house-sized cylinders from the deck and hitting the water had taken two slow, exacting hours. The descent itself required five more. During snags and rest breaks, I inspected the squat towers that would cradle the turbines, darting under and around their angled beams, even though we'd already completed our structural tests. But there was no escaping my thoughts. Leaving now, quitting now, would be crazy. Reverse surgery and rehab would take almost a quarter of the time left in my contract, and I'd forfeit everything but the signing bonus. We'd lose the home, our future, find ourselves back in the city, scrambling for wages, and I would never work for Aerocorp again in any capacity. Even their competitors would have no reason to rely on me, a hard truth that always led me back to the same worry. Can I ever trust her again? The weather had been cooperating, but even 19-ton hunks of metal will act like sails in deep currents, and close to sundown we realized that there had been a miscalculation. Some pendulum swinging had been accounted for, it was a drop of 400 feet, but instead of a near-simultaneous mounting, we had a double miss. Each elevator platform had jets which I could use for final adjustments, but they weren't powerful enough to muscle the turbines 20 meters against the current. We're 20 east, I said. Let's elevate 10, bring them back up. The nearest turbine was a smooth sculpture caught in a web of cables that led upward as far as my sonar reached. ROVs, remote-operated vehicles, scooted about or hovered patiently nearby. And when I switched briefly to my fuzzy, nearsighted, normal vision, the busy sea became busier, shot through with the ROV's beams of light. All of this generated surprisingly little noise. The whirring of ROV props, the harp vibrations of the current against the cables. The first explosion sounded like God had slapped the surface, a bass thunder that reached me an instant after the radio surged with voices. Was that the engine? Fire! Fire! Number two cranes lost all exterior cables. The last bit of information I personally witnessed as the turbine sagged in its web. If it fell, it would roll into the cradle tower and ruin weeks of hard labor. I swam closer, thinking I might use the platform jets to keep it afloat or ease it to the bottom, but two ROVs tumbled into my path as their operators lost contact. I kicked left, one struck my scarred shoulder and numbed my arm. I had been assigned an emergency frequency, direct to Stenstrom. Would he be there? The way the ROVs had shut down, the comm room might have been destroyed. I said, This is Garcia. He was in a near panic. Can you stabilize number two? I'm on it. What's happening? We're under attack. Speedboats, they're widecasting some animal earth crap. Three small cylinders lanced into the far range of my sonar, moving fast. Smart torps. They were beautiful in the way that sharks can be, sleek and purposeful. A hard swarm of warheads chased by their own turbulence. I probably wouldn't attract their attention, not being a power source or made of metal. Oh, not much metal. But the concussive force of a detonation anywhere nearby would kill me. I dug and kicked down, down. Tightness in my bad arm made my effort lopsided, slowing me. The buzzing torps grew very loud. The rift was not deep compared to the plunging valley where I'd encountered the squid, but at its edge was a thick bulge of carbonate. I ducked past, scraping my hip. 
That rock saved me by taking the brunt of the explosions, then nearly killed me as parts of it broke away. I was stunned, slow to move. Animal Earth. The rant and slants they'd posted during our effort here had been based on a refusal to accept our stated purpose. They were greens. They should have supported us, but frothed instead about the blatant destruction of ocean habitats. I stayed in the rift for two hours, watching, listening, afraid to broadcast on any channel in case there were more hunter-killers waiting to acquire targets. The attack had stopped after five minutes, but our radio communications remained incoherent, and Stenstrom tried miserably to raise me on the emergency link again and again. He tried general frequencies, too, even sharecasting his public response to the attack. One of the speedboats had been apprehended by Japanese military aircraft, and suspects were in custody. Given the armament involved and the coordination of the assault, Stenstrom suggested that the whole thing was a cover for our competitors in the nuclear oil industries, and already there were conflicting denials and claims of solidarity from Animal Earth spokespeople. Finally, I began my ascent, goaded by the constant dig of the voices in my cheekbone. At 100 feet, I saw a man, a body, deformed by violence and twisting loosely in the current. We hesitated together in the dim, penetrating glow of the sun. Then I turned my back on him. Andrea and the boys were well provided for, and she obviously didn't need me. Brent had never needed me, and Roberto... Roberto was young enough to forget and move on. Let them think I was dead, lost to the tide. The insurance payouts alone would be a fortune. Four miles proved to be the radio's range. I kept going into the beautiful dark and never let anyone intrude on my world again. And that was our story. One thing I didn't mention about our narrator, Grey Dancer, is he's a former Marine. So with that bias, he asked me if he could snicker every time he said Navy SEAL in the story. Luckily, he didn't, saving me editing time and probably my neck. Okay, so feedback for Escape Pod 144, Friction by Will McIntosh. This was the story about an alien philosopher whose life's goal is to read the wall with the wisdom of the masters before he's completely worn away. The feedback on this one was overwhelming. Comment after comment of favorite EP episode ever. Void Munashal wrote on the blog, This was a very unusual episode. By all counts, it should have been boring. No explosions, no gun battles or sex. There wasn't even any cursing or robots. Instead, there was this deep story that was at the same time reasonably uneventful, but also intensely riveting. Gulliver said, Friction touched me deeply, deeply, and inspired me to reevaluate my priorities in life. Can a work of fiction do more than that? It wasn't completely without criticism. Anarchy thought it fell short by lacking biological and perhaps scatological detail, but for most people, this story was a huge success. As for me, well, friction was very important to me, too. That whole week was sort of a turning point for the podcast and for me personally. But I'll talk about that in a Metacast, hopefully this weekend. I'll just say that narrating friction was the one good thing I did on the worst day of my life. And I thank Will McIntosh for that. Back to business. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. If you like this story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you like us, I hope you'll consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. 
You can also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, or by archive CDs at poddisc.com, or you can go to podcastle.org for our fantasy podcast, Podcastle, which is launching April 1st. Repeat, Podcastle is launching April 1st. This is not an April Fool's joke. Stay tuned for more details. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can find them at daikaiju.org. And because this episode's not long enough yet, our special pressure-themed closing music is by Jonathan Colton. The song is I Crush Everything from his album Where Tradition Meets Tomorrow. You can find more from him at jonathancolton.com. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from E.E. Cummings, who wrote in one of his poems, For whatever we lose, like a you or a me, it's always ourself we find in the sea. We'll find you next week. Meanwhile, have fun.
Doesn't matter that much When you're ten miles down In the light that filters down Into my giant yellow eye I can see the sails unfolding Stretching wide against the sky And I forgive them I forgive and I let go Cause I can't do that thing anymore can't be the thing I was before Maybe I am better off alone Because I crush everything And I crush everything And I crush everything Pretty white shit that I am dreaming.